Good to have you here on episode 122. Can diet and lifestyle really affect the body when it has cancer? Or is the system too far gone? Shot to shit if you like, and thus we have to wave the white flag of surrender. If you've had cancer, know someone with cancer, or simply want to prepare your own body for aging towards an age where disease is more likely, then this episode is for you because we speak with a cancer survivor that leveraged the uncommonly leveraged metabolic tool of the ketogenic diet, intermittent and water fasting, and also the power of ownership to come out the other side of chemotherapy relatively unscathed. I loved this conversation and I know you will too. It's a powerful story. So... Let's get into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? I hope that things are cracking along just nicely in this 2021 chapter. And as well, I hope that you are one of the 250 individuals that chooses to work with me this year to create the sustainable, healthy life that you've always wanted, which might look like something like losing weight and finally feeling healthy in your own body. By the end of the year, 250 people will have committed to my program and changed their lives for the better. And as I said, if you're ready, willing and committed, then I hope you are one of them. The link is in the show notes below to join my Facebook group. Now, before I move into this amazing conversation, which is sure to melt your brain, especially if you've had a loved one that's experienced cancer or you yourself have. Before we do that, I want to share a fun fact, although it's not that fun, but here is a fact of sorts. (laughs) Did you know that Kraft Singles are called Kraft Singles because there's not enough cheese in them to legally call them cheese? Controversy? (laughs) How crazy is that? Now, if you follow me at all, you'll know that I don't really advocate for any form of dairy due to its exceptionally processed and unnatural state by the time it's on the shelf of a mainstream supermarket. But even so, when I first learned this, I was like, what? (laughs) This shit is crazy. I mean, don't get me wrong. I know enough about the food and agricultural industry that you could tell me that chickens were actually galactic skybirds and that eggs are purposely in abundance because they allow aliens to Wi-Fi into our own minds, and I wouldn't be surprised. Insert Zuckerberg. (laughs) Hell, maybe food is an illusion itself. I don't bloody know. Anyway, getting back on track today and pulling my head out of the clouds and into a good conversation. So I want to introduce you to Martha Tettenborn a registered dietitian, a good dietitian, don't worry, this is one we definitely like. (laughs) She's also a certified primal health coach with over 30 years of experience working in various areas of nutrition. Her private practice, Primal RD, promotes a low-carb and high-fat lifestyle for healthy aging and chronic disease prevention. She's been featured at the Low Carb Long Weekend Summit and also instructs courses for the Nutrition Network and Udemy on the ketogenic approach to cancer treatment. And we welcome her here to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. How are you, Martha? I'm just fabulous. Thank you very much. It's nice to be talking to Australia from snowy central Ontario, Canada. (laughs) Oh, it's nice to be connected with you too. And I'm glad to hear that you are just recently out of lockdown, which is nice. (laughs) As of Tuesday. 
Yeah. Wonderful. Uh, I'm really excited for this conversation because um, we both have backgrounds uh, in cancer in different ways. And so you've obviously been a dietitian for over 30 years. And so you've probably seen eggs classified as good and bad about five times each. And so, but in that window of time, what were the major highs and lows across your career that got you to where you are today in that space of sort of oncology nutrition? Well, um, I actually, interestingly enough, started university in nutrition in 1980, which was the year of the McGovern Commission and the guidelines in the U.S. coming out that said that low fat was the way to go for absolutely everybody. Um, So it was considered cutting edge science when I was uh, starting through my nutrition degree in uh, the early 80s. And I practiced using that paradigm for most of my career, for probably the first 15, 20 years anyways. Um, And I worked in home care, and I worked in uh, hospital, and and I started a private practice. And I must say that most of that time, I wasn't really happy with the results that I was seeing in people, that I wasn't really able to help people um, as much as I would like. So somewhere around 2007, I started pulling my head out of the sand a little bit and looking around for um, alternate views. And that's when I started to come across the idea that maybe fat wasn't the devil after all. And, um, and there was this alternate view of nutrition where um, protein and fat were, were actually um, important nutrients, not um, the kind of thing that we're supposed to be limited. And as I got more involved in that, I got involved uh, particularly with Mark's Daily Apple, Mark Sisson and the Primal Blueprint um, approach, and was very involved in his forums for a number of years and, um, and eventually decided to put my money where my mouth was. And uh, I did the Primal Health Coach certification and started a private practice. I still work in long-term care uh, three days a week. That's my day job. And um, I love working with, um, with our elders and our seniors. Um, but I do see the end stage um, of a number of chronic diseases like Alzheimer's and diabetes and strokes and cardiovascular disease and so on that... Um, that are, you know, probably related to what we, um, what we have done, especially over the last 40 years. But I ended up in cancer nutrition, basically, because I got cancer. (laughs) Um, A couple of years, yeah, a couple of years ago, I ended up with ovarian cancer. And um, prior to that, I mean, most dietitians just think about cancer as being something that we just help people to survive through. You know, the, the treatments are awful. And um, so supporting somebody w- to get adequate calories to prevent weight loss and, and um, to get them through the side effects of the treatment was basically all that most dietitians did in terms of, um, of cancer or uh, cancer nutrition. Um, but when it came time for me to go through chemotherapy, I decided that I needed to look at it from my perspective, which was the low-carb, um, healthy fat sort of approach. And I started diving into um, cancer you know, and, and nutrition and came up with a whole different kettle of fish than anything I had ever seen before. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I, in a very different way, went on the same journey and came up with the probably a similar kettle of fish, but very different to what my environment was informing me of. Were you, were you going into that process on your can, in your cancer journey, um, thinking low carb from the get go, or did it take maybe a few cycles of treatment to think maybe this way isn't working and I need to look at the low carb option? No, no, I've been eating low carb for probably six, seven, eight years. Um, you know, in the last couple of years, like the keto diet has been the thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but LCHF or, you know, a moderate low carb diet is sort of where I had um, hung my hat prior to um, cancer treatment. I tried the keto diet, I tried fasting, I, you know, I tried the even tried the carn well no not prior to cancer treatment i hadn't tried the carnivore diet it's just sort of become a thing in the last year yeah, a year has. and a half um but i've tried a month or two of that as well i mean you know i'm the ultimate n equals one experiment right yeah totally um, relates yeah yeah so um no i had been already eating low carb and and that was one of the reasons that i i decided i really needed to look into this further knowing that there was a carbohydrate um, Western diet connection to most other chronic lifestyle diseases. I was certainly interested in looking into uh, whether or not cancer as a lifestyle disease had a similar um, underlying mechanism of some sort. And it turns out it did. <laughs> like everybody seems to think that cancer is all about genetics and yet there's this whole field of cancer metabolism that we knew about in the 1920s and then it got lost and it's just started to be discovered again. It was really kind of the best possible time to, for a dietitian to get cancer, I guess you could say. That was one of the mind-blowing uh, things that happened for me on my journey was when I realized working in a cancer hospital, one that we never talked about causation, but there was really very little conversation to the degree that there was about genetics, about the other factors. And when I too learnt about the Warburg effect and the cellular metabolism uh, of cancer and, and, yeah, multiple other chronic diseases as well, I was really shocked to then find out on the World Health Organization website on their cancer page, they list in the top three causes of cancer, diet and lifestyle. And this was one of my big moments where I was like, hang on, One, we don't talk about diet and lifestyle. And two, the education system doesn't give anybody in the building, apart from dietitians, uh, which have a minimal role, uh, any any food education. So my my mind was melted. I was like, it seems like we know how to help a lot of people. And and the statistics at the time of of me reviewing that were, you know, five to 10% of cancers are genetic. The rest are all a result of smoking, diet or lifestyle. And I was like, so 90% of people we can help and we're not? Like, (laughs) Well, there's a big difference between the things that you do to avoid getting cancer and the things that you do when you have cancer, right? Um, Absolutely. So, you know, there's prevention and then there's treatment. And there, there are two different approaches. They're two different, very different paradigms. Uh, and you're right. Like, you know, we can identify, we figured it out with smoking, right? I mean, smoking causes lung cancer. Stop the freaking smoking. <laughs> and yet we haven't figured that out for the rest of the lifestyle stuff. We haven't figured it out for, for food. You know, I mean, I read years and years ago that there seemed to be possibly some connection between polyunsaturated fats 
and an increased risk of cancer. So, you know, people were taking polyunsaturated fats like canola oil and soy oil and corn oil and all those sort of things. And they were having less cholesterol in their blood and possibly less heart disease. But the all-cause mortality wasn't going down because there seemed to be an increase in cancer. Yeah, And I, I mean, I read that decades ago and yet nobody was doing anything about it. We're still recommending people use, you know, canola oil. And I mean, and again, I, I keep going back to this uh, concept of follow the money, right? Yeah, totally. Uh, follow the money. Um, and that's where you will find that um, a lot of our politics and a lot of our industry and everything is all about following the money and the money you know for the last 70 80 years especially in i don't know about australia but in the in the american midwest was all about growing uh cash crops and you know yeah and the green revolution you know all the the chemicals after the war that allowed for this huge explosion in cash crop production now we're growing all this corn and wheat and soybeans. What are we going to do with it? Well, we need to create a market for it. So then, you know, the whole, you know, the whole mechanism of agriculture shifts over to, well, we need to, we need to create people who want to consume these things and we need to create products that are made with these things. And next thing you know, you've got soya oil and soya protein and high fructose corn syrup and corn starch and, you know, all these things that are our end products of these these cash crops. Absolutely. And the, all of those foods, not only are they in the food system that then leads to a diseased society, but the place that people go to, and I say this loosely, heal their bodies is a hospital and the kitchen at the hospital is full of all of those exact same disease-stimulating foods and, and, you know, that cause all of these horrible advanced glycation end products and that cause the problem in the first place. That was the big thing I realized as well. I was like, the problem happens out there, outside the hospital. They come here, they, they get some toxic food that adds to the pile of crap and, and sometimes some toxic medicine too, and then they go back into the life that caused it. I know. And you know what? Nina Teichold's is right. You have to start with the guidelines because the guidelines are what um, regulates everything else. It's what regulates our menus and long-term care. It's what regulates the schools, the jails, the hospitals, um, you know, the public health guidelines. Everything is based on those what are supposed to be evidence-based but are probably money-based um, guidelines. Right. And so until the guidelines are fixed, it's, the hospital isn't going to be fixed. Now, it's really funny because I hadn't been in the hospital as a, an employee for probably 25 years. I hadn't been in as a inpatient for 30. Well, my youngest is 28. So 28 years since the last time I was an inpatient in the hospital. So I ended up in hospital to have surgery when they discovered that I had this this cancer. And um, I went down to a large uh, cancer center um, referral hospital down country, about three hours away. And um, I, I went in and let them know that I was a ketogenic eater, a keto eater, and that I was a dietitian. And I'll tell you, there was nothing there for me to eat. Breakfast arrived the first day after my surgery. And so I hadn't been able to choose 
the menu because I hadn't been there the day before. It was um, multi-grain Cheerios, so that the high sugar kind, uh, low-fat milk, a low-fat creamer, margarine, um, a pre-made blueberry muffin with like wrapped in cellophane, and a fruit-based yogurt and a juice and a coffee. And I had the coffee. <laughs> so minimal fat and almost no protein. <laughs> no, no. And then, you know, lunch comes and it's like low-fat mayonnaise and blah. Oh, so, so many second, trans fats in those as well. I know. So the second day I got to pick my own menu and I ended up with two hard-boiled eggs and a one of those little hospital packets of peanut butter, which I just ate off the knife. Yeah, <laughs> that was and my and coffee. That was my breakfast the second morning, so it looked a little different than the first one. <laughs> Did you find that when you were there, from a patient perspective, that like it was actually really challenging? And were you met with uh, any type of judgment from the health practitioners around you, the doctors and the dietitians in the hospital? Actually, the dietitian in the hospital came to see me when I was an inpatient, um, and I just explained to her what I do, and she was actually, she under, you know, she was aware of a keto diet and under, kind of understood it. She said, you know, you're right, there's not much in the way of healthy fats around here, and there's not, you know, you're going to have trouble. But what she gave me is a sheet of things that I was allowed to write in. So those are the kind of the alternates that were always available, like peanut butter packets, like the hard-boiled eggs. Like there was stuff that I could add, just write it into the menu because it wasn't part of the choice. Um, so I did that. But I mean, it's still, you know, hospital food. I ordered salmon and it came and it was just a little three-ounce piece and it was bear's bear as anything and bear broccoli and you know steamed broccoli it was pretty gross so I actually had a friend come in and walk me down to the cafeteria and we went to the big to a still pretty lousy but it, it was a salad bar and I was able to get some you know put together a meal for myself anyways that, yeah, that's def so. definitely progress. I feel like if I had any family members or friends that chose to yeah go into the hospital and do that process I would be like Ain't nobody feeding you but me. <laughs> when I, I I briefly ended up in the hospital here in my hometown, um, I, I ended up getting influenza A halfway between chemo five and chemo six, yep. and um, so I ended up in hot. I had no immune system to speak of at that point, so I ended up in hospital for a couple of days. And uh, yeah, I had my husband going off to the, the local Fresh Mart and buying me, you know, cob salads with avocado and, you know, bring, bringing me food from home and stuff and so that I could uh, make it through until I got home again. Because I stayed strict keto for the entire time that I was in chemotherapy. I don't live that way all the time. I eat, a, you know, a moderate whole foods, low carb sort of diet most of the time. But I was strictly keto, like doing blood tests. I knew I was in at least moderate ketosis the whole time. Um, so I was, I was being really careful. Yeah. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. 
And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. I know that you looked into a lot of research in regards to the way that the that fasting as well contributed to the way that you were able to manage chemo and of course the cancer state of the body and the obviously the Warburg effect. Are you able to share with us sort of what you learned and then your experience about applying that? Oh yeah. Yeah, that's what really really um kind of got me excited was the research that was done by Walter Longo in the last, mostly between sort of 2005. He's still working on it a little bit, though he's got more into longevity now. But he was doing a lot of work with cancer and fasting. And he was using um, all sorts of organisms, right, from sort of yeast and little flies all the way up through rodents to humans. Um, and he was looking at the role of fasting to, um, first of all, potentiate the chemotherapy itself by making the cancer cells stressed. Um, basically, cancer, one of the hallmarks of cancer, as you know, is that it has no off switch. It has no way to downregulate its metabolism. Yeah. Um, and the metabolism that it does use is very glucose dependent. It's very sugar dependent. So if you put your body into ketosis and then you actually even dry up your any energy supply by, by fasting... The cancer cells are, are very stressed by that because they can't turn off. But healthy cells downregulate their metabolism. They kind of go into, I call it stealth mode. They go into a quiet mode where they just are waiting for the next, you know, food supply. And that's an evolutionary thing that we've had for millions of years. I mean, we'd all have died on the savannah if, if we didn't have the ability to, <laughs> yeah. to kind of go into quiet mode, Absolutely. right? Yeah, so when you do that... Um, particularly right at the time of chemotherapy, you know, what I discovered is that chemo is basically a blunt weapon. It's, it's a, a, can, a chemical that is aimed at fast metabolizing cells. That's its target, right? So chemically, it is looking for the markers of metabolism, fast metabolism, because that's what cancer does. Um, so the other cells in, in your body that are metabolizing fast will also attract the attention of that, that drug. Um, in an adult, we don't have a lot of cells that are still in active growth mode. You know, our hair is still in active growth mode. Um, our bone marrow, where we make all our immune system components and our blood, blood cell components, it's still growing rapidly. Or, or, you know, in growth mode. Yep. And the lining of our digestive tract and our airways and stuff that's always turning over, that part is um, rapid growth. So if, if you could slow down your cells, then the chemo literally misses them. Um, 
and the the cancer gets hit harder because it's it's stressed and the healthy cells don't so the side effects are significantly less when you're in a fasted state particularly the immediate ones like your gi tract yeah which makes total sense yeah i never had problems with uh, mouth sores or nausea i had minimal almost no nausea never vomited um hardly ever missed a meal in fact i didn't miss making a meal Sometimes it was just bacon and eggs, you know, I'd get out of my chair and go make bacon and eggs and crawl back in my chair. But, um, but for me, that was important. And, uh, and I, I was just stunned that my experience with chemo was so different. And the other thing that was really cool is that as I went through my six treatments, each one got kind of lighter or less difficult than the one before and that's the opposite to the usual experience of chemo where the effects are cumulative and it gets worse and worse as you go through by the end of it i was taking almost nothing in the way of um, additional medication to help with side effects the stuff that they give you for post chemo every treatment i would be doing less than the treatment before yeah, that's amazing. It Do you was. think for, for you, the reason that, that the cumulative effects went in the opposite direction was because of your years of uh, metabolic conditioning through eating low carb and through familiarity with intermittent fasting and fasting over the years? Do you think that that was like it was such a good outcome for you because of your previous conditioning? And if somebody was to make this new introduction to a low-carb lifestyle in response to a cancer diagnosis after a long life of carb-heavy, sugar-rich, you know, hydrogenated oil-filled foods, that it would be not the same impact? What are your thoughts? Um, I think that I found it easier to do because I was metabolically flexible already. Um, but I have helped other people through the process who didn't come to it from a long term, you know, low carb lifestyle. And they did the fast, the 72 hour fast, which is what I, based on my research, that's kind of what I practiced and what I recommend. Um, and they came through it with significantly less side effects as well. So Amazing. Be- yeah, being metabolically flexible is is helpful. So most people, when they get a cancer diagnosis, it's like a freaking elephant lands in their living room, right? Yeah, and fair so, enough too. Yeah. Um, so often that's the place where you start suddenly going like, oh my God, I, I have to do something different. So, so often that's where you start into, you know, a low carb or a keto diet. And by the time a couple of weeks rolls around and you're finally getting started on chemotherapy, um, you're, you know, you possibly, you've had time to do some significant metabolic rearrangement already. Oh, absolutely. And people uh, like keto, you know, we're born in a ketogenic state. So the body isn't totally unfamiliar with that pathway. It just, it's, I often refer to it as like going to the gym, you know, you just need to, just need to remind your muscles that they're there. (laughs) Oh, you know, we, we will not keep around anything in our bodies that we don't use. I mean, we're, we're very thrifty that way. So if we're not ever using those fat burning metabolic chemical pathways, then we'll just, We'll break them down, use that those proteins for something else. Like we just mothball them, right? Yeah. We don't even mothball them. We, we literally take them apart. But the blueprint's always there in our genes. So once you start signaling to your body that you're going to use those again by what you put in, 
the food signal of, of high fat and low carb, um, then your body will, it won't take long for it to, to respond to that signal and, and upregulate those metabolic pathways again. Just it, it takes a couple of weeks and, you know, you can get into some carb flu and stuff in the meantime. But the way I wrote the book was, here's how you start into low carb. And then after a couple of weeks, here's how you go, go into a more ketogenic diet. Because you can't just start from nothing and go into, you know, less than 20 grams of carb. You'll be miserable. Absolutely. <laughs> right? It would not yeah. be good. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, However, so- I guess the catch is there though that because the way, the way I work with people is definitely long-term sustainable health, but so it's like one tweak a week. We make small changes over time so that keto flu is virtually non-existent because you know it's happening so slowly. However, in the instance of a cancer diagnosis, you probably want to move things fairly quickly. <laughs> that's it like people with cancer don't have time to wait yeah exactly it's like tell me what to do yesterday um (laughs) because you know i i live in canada where we have socialized medicine and you know so things sometimes you have to wait for them a little bit they're all you know they're all paid for but some you you might get in line so it's you know i've heard of people in the states who literally get diagnosed in the morning and they're in surgery like by the afternoon you know, like without time to even think. It, ha- it happens so much here as well that like the doctors just, well, firstly, they're trained and educated to do that. Um, but they put the pressure on the patients to be like, go, 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 go. And it's just so much physical overwhelm, but also emotional, even spiritual for some people. It's just oh, ultimate totally. overwhelm. Totally. You, you need time to come to terms with what it is you're dealing like I, I describe it as the elephant in the room you know it's you're, you're going along and then suddenly this elephant just you know lands in the middle of the living room of your life and you have to deal with it you don't have a choice but you you have to have time to process some of that stuff and and that's where take the time you know I had doctors say like nothing is going to change between now and three weeks from now like take yeah. some time to think about this right um, and That's I didn't advice. really, I didn't understand it at first because I discovered the, um, lump in my abdomen in mid July and it was summer and, you know, the local gynecologist was on a sabbatical for a month because it was summer. And, um, it took me until the end of September to get into surgery, to have it removed. And, then I, you know, six days later discovered it was cancer. And then it took another three and a half weeks before I had a, um, an appointment at the cancer center down in London. And, you know, and then it was another month and a month and a half before I had the hysterectomy. And then it was another month after that before I had the start of chemotherapy. So it was from the middle of July to the middle of January between discovering it and actually starting chemo um, for me. So there was time for me to, to kind of come up with a plan. I'm glad you shared that because I think that might give people that have not yet experienced what you've been through just a bit of permission to take a breath, to call in sick, to work the next few days so you can sit down with the people you love and talk and think and explore options and um, and deal with the challenging family members that will will throw what their opinions at you and the doctors that will throw their opinions at you and you know the people you follow on Instagram that will throw their opinions at you. There's yeah, you got to take some time to process the information in such an overwhelming time because it's so easy to become a victim to the process and totally outsource your responsibility just, yeah, due to overwhelm. So 
Oh, yeah. Just the, you know, okay, tell me what to do. Yeah, <laughs> right? totally. Yeah. And you need time to come to grips with being a person with cancer. That's what I found is like, I needed to be able to tell the people that I love in person. And to do that, I had to be able to come to terms with it myself first. And then once I did that, um, then I was able to, you know, tell the people that in my immediate circle, which meant calling people, you know, like telling them face to face and, and then starting to kind of go out to the wider world. Like I was still working. So, I mean, I knew when I started chemo, I was going to go bald. Right. And, um, I wasn't one to wear a wig. Thank you very much. I wore a toque. It was dead of winter. I wore a toque, like a knitted hat all winter at work. Okay, I obviously things were happening. So I just went, I wrote a letter to my entire staff in my nursing home and went down and stuck it on the staff room fridge and said, this is what I'm going to be going through. And I, you know, just wanted you to know. Um, and then the, the interesting thing is that people that I felt like I, I had just the barest acquaintance with, you know, passed them in the hallway. They knew who I was. I knew who they were sort of thing. They were coming to my office door and offering me like their best wishes. It was amazing the people that kind of came out of the woodwork and you know wanted to to wish me the best and um, and other people who had to step away. They just you know for whatever reason personal maybe they lost someone to cancer. Who knows? But there was people who couldn't be part of my circle. They just for their own emotional health or whatever they had to back away. And and you never know who those people are until until it happens right so and then i started a blog so the whole world knew yeah. what was going on and a facebook page <laughs> and then i wrote a book <laughs> yeah. and then wrote a book <laughs> i'm really glad you brought this up because um i was something i wanted to ask you about regarding the book and, and it's, it's this sort of topic you're talking about is that the way that our family and friends and sort of uh, our overall social circle perceive us. And uh, and you mentioned in the book about um, how, how people can avoid the you poor dear syndrome um, from your circle of, of friends and carers and loved ones. And so um, I'm, I'm thinking that some people probably need to hear this. So I'd love you to share a little bit on that you poor dear syndrome because I know from, again, from working in the hospital, so many people get looked at like they're dead already. Yes. And, you know, from their family. And that's just through a lack of understanding of, of medicine, of biology, and the way that our, our society has cultured us to think about this, you know, the war on cancer and the most deadly disease, disease ever. But I'd love if you can share a little bit on that topic because I think it's profound. Yes. Well, I had to look at how I was going to approach cancer. Um, Once I realized that I had this power of nutrition to to impact on it, um, I I, I just felt like I I was powerful. And and, I mean, I called my blog um, Powerful Beyond Measure, which comes from a Marianne Williamson quote quote about, you know, we sometimes we're afraid that we're insignificant, but actually we're afraid that we're powerful beyond measure because with power comes responsibility right, to do something with it. Yeah. Um, so I said, I when I looked at how I was going to approach my time with cancer and my journey with cancer, I didn't want to be, I refused to be a victim. I, that's just, that's just me and my, I'm, I'm a 
person who's always kind of in control and I just refuse to be the victim. Um, and I refuse to be someone who just laid down and said, okay, do to me whatever you will, right? Tell me what to do. Um, but I also refuse to be a warrior because when you go into battle, you're like, you're, you're revved up. Your whole fight or flight thing is, you know, wound up, you're stressed. And I thought that's not a healthy way to, to be either. So I spent some time thinking about it. And, and what I really came to was an understanding that cancer is yourself, but misguided. Like cancer cells aren't a foreign invader. They're, they're an invader of space, but they're not a foreign invader. They are your own cells that have gone wrong. They've gone down a wrong path. Um, they've become damaged. And so I would literally go to bed every night and just love on my own abdomen sort of thing. Um, you know, put my hands on my abdomen and, and just feel grateful and feel love for myself because that was really the only way that I felt like I was going to heal and to stay strong and to um, to get through this journey in the best possible way I could. And so, um, yeah, so I, when people, when I would meet people and, you know, obviously, I mean, I have no hair, I have no eyebrows, um, you know, you can tell something's going on. Now, mind you, it's winter in Canada. So, I mean, except when I was indoors, like at, at my workplace, I just wore a toque all winter. Nobody knew there was no hair under there. Right? Yeah, right. Um, but, uh, but still, you'd meet people and they'd, they'd just kind of, you know, they'd look at you with this, this pitying look and they'd go, oh, my dear, how are you? And I'd be, I'm freaking awesome. Thank you very much. I right? love that. <laughs> I mean, I have four or five kind of low energy days right around chemotherapy. And then the other two and a half weeks, I'm great. And then Amazing. we start again. You know? Um, so that was kind of my approach. And that's kind of, I, I put that in the book as well, because the book is, it's about using the keto diet. It's about using the fasting protocol for chemotherapy. But the third part of the title says, a kick-ass attitude to power through cancer. I think that's so important, like, because avoiding that narrative, it sounds like the main part of that journey on the sort of you know, emotional side is about ownership. And it sounds like you're just totally owning your position where the reality you're in and the, and utilizing the tools you've got. And I think it's, it's empowering for people to hear that they don't have to write the victim narrative into their health story just because the C word pops up. Absolutely. And, and I mean, I, I'm a, I've been a dietitian for 30 years. I did not know about this cancer metabolism stuff. I didn't have any clue before this happened to me that I had such power to impact on the cancer treatment and the side effects. And, you know, cause I mean, I was terrified of chemo. Chemo was poison. Like I was terrified. I, I'd never had a surgery. I mean, I literally lived my entire life without an incision and I'm 60. Go for, yeah. you know. I mean, I've had two babies, but you know, that was it. Um, and so surgery, yeah, I wasn't fond of the idea of surgery, but chemo just, you know, I'm totally drug naive. I was just terrified of this poison. And yet here I had this power to impact my journey with the cancer through nutrition. Like who knew, right? 
Oh, I love it. I love that you've been able to share through all sorts of platforms, but as well here on the podcast that the impact that lifestyle, you know, the mindset and, you know, fasting and ketogenic diet has had on a disease state. I think it's such a powerful message that people need to hear. Thanks. It was you great to be able to tell people. So can I mention where, my book? <laughs> I was just about to say, where can people find you online and your book? Okay. Well, the book is called Hacking Chemo, Using Ketogenic Diet, Therapeutic Fasting, and a Kick-Ass Attitude to Power Through Cancer. And it's available on Amazon, all the different platforms in all the different countries, as well as local bookstores. It's available as both an ebook and a print-on-demand paperback. Um, I have sold a few copies in Australia already, believe it or not. Awesome. Uh, yes, it is. Hopefully we can help a few more there. <laughs> that would be great. Um, I have a website with my blog and information on the book and, and a few other um, pages, some evidence and other stuff. The website is just my name, marthatettenborn.com, um, all lowercase. Um, if you search hacking chemo, on Amazon, I'm the only name that's anywhere like that, so it'll come up easily. Um, and uh, you're best to do that and then figure out how to spell my name because it's not, <laughs> not easy. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so the website's marthatettenborn.com, and, and I blog there. I have a Facebook page called Powerful Beyond Measure as well where people can uh, can follow along with my journey, and I'll – I post recipes and I post when I put a new blog up and um, research that I find and that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Amazing. So for everybody listening, if you've enjoyed this episode, take a screenshot, share it on social media. All of Martha's handles that she mentioned before and links and whatnot will be down in the show notes below. And Martha, to finish up, I ask everybody this final question uh, because it's always a, an interesting answer. And that is, if you were to give one piece of health information that you wish more people knew about, what would it be? That you're in control of your own health journey. Um, that you can be powerfully in control of your own health journey. And that you need to approach everything you do in life and in terms of your health um, with self-love and with gratitude, um, not with criticism, not with anger, not with fear. Don't get paralyzed if you get the big C word coming at you or any other sort of health diagnosis. You are powerful. I love that. Thanks so much for being on the show, Martha. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been wonderful. You are more than welcome. I wish you all the best. You too. <laughs> See you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use, and we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you on the next episode. presented that feature on this podcast endeavor to provide accurate information it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional